sharing our faith and passion for the Lord Jesus Christ with others is a desire of Zion Christian Fellowship. Our prayer is that this message will have a lasting impact on your life and draw you closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. This message is not copyrighted. You are free to make copies for friends and neighbors. We only ask that you copy it in its entirety without alterations or changes. Now unto the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, greetings in Jesus' name to everyone that's gathered here this morning. Special welcome to the visitors. God bless you for being here with us. and We trust you can be edified and blessed. You can turn with me to the book of Daniel, book of Daniel chapter 4, We're going through the book of Daniel. This is now chapter 4 we want to look at today. And again, it shows the hand of God in the affairs of men. One of our theme verses in going through this study is found in, I believe it's chapter 11 where it says that those that know their God shall do exploits. And again, the book of Daniel is a, um, is a book of prophecy teaching about the end times, but it also teaches us how to live in the end times. Not just, not just a four- uh, telling of what is to come, but rather it is an example for us, and we can receive instruction again today in chapter 4. I'll begin reading the first several verses here as an introduction. It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now this is rather interesting in that this passage here is is a bit of a decree or an, an explanation, it was a, a proclamation at least that went throughout all his kingdom in which he intended to portray to the people and convey to them what God had done in his own life. Now that is rather astounding when you think of Nebuchadnezzar as being a heathen king who did not fear God at least not in the beginning of his reign. And we have the example there of the fiery furnace where he 
just had no time for a God that exceeded himself in power. He said, what God can deliver you out of my hand? And yet, in his defiance, God showed himself uh, strong. And here again, you would think that Nebuchadnezzar should have learned a few things by now, but God had another uh, lesson for King Nebuchadnezzar. And so, here's Nebuchadnezzar now giving this account after the fact here in the introduction. It's already passed, and he's now sending this story. And then he goes back into the story so that the people might know and understand how God had dealt with him. And so here was the primary thing that Nebuchadnezzar learned. He kind of summarizes it. He extols the God of heaven. He thought it good to show the signs and wonders. And that term would refer to miracles. He wanted them to understand that this God, the high God, does miracles. Meaning it goes far beyond what men can do, and it actually uh, affects the very course of nature, and the things as we know it can be changed by this high God. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now that is interesting that not only is he the high God who rules over all and rules in the affairs of men, but that also continues from generation to generation. There is no end to his dominion. So this was the primary thing that Nebuchadnezzar learned and what he wanted to convey to the people. And he gives the account of how God wrought that in his life. If we were to, if you want to turn over a page there to the very last verse of chapter 4. He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. So let's read now this account beginning in verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in mine house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore made I a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. Then came in the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers, and I told the dream before them, but they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. But at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and before him I told the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, 
Because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubleth thee, tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen, and the interpretation thereof. Thus were the visions of mine head in my bed. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. The tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and an holy one came down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree. And cut off his branches, shake off his leaves, and scatter his fruit. Let the beasts get away from under it and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times pass over him. This matter is by the decree of the watchers, and the demand by the word of the holy ones, to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it the basest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof, forasmuch as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation. But thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was astonished for one hour, and his thoughts troubled him. The king spake and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. The tree that thou sawest, which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heaven, and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much, And in it was meat for all under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation. It is thou, O king, that art grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown and reacheth unto heaven, and thy dominion to the end of the earth. And whereas the king saw a watcher and an holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Hew the tree down and destroy it, Yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen. 
And they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee, after that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee, and they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar. And he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagles' feathers, and his nails like birds' claws. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. Or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom mine honor and brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. So this was a testimony of God's miraculous power. And the miracles that God did here was, well, there are several. One is God knew the end from the beginning. He knew what was going to happen. That's uh, beyond mortal man's capabilities. God also took Nebuchadnezzar's reason, his sanity, away from him at a stroke, the same hour, it says. So in a, in a moment of time, his sanity just left him. 
And that lasted for seven years. And then God restored it back to him after he had learned uh, the lesson that God wanted to teach him. During the time that he was insane, not in his right mind, and changed very radically from his uh, the normal nature of a man into that of a beast, eating grass like an ox, just totally out of the ordinary. But during all that time, God still maintained his kingdom. And that at the end of those seven years, he was able to take the throne again and the kingdom was restored to him. That was the miraculous power of God because it's not the nature of men to allow a power vacuum like that to go unfilled. They would tend to rise up and take the kingdom. And in fact, it seems that Belteshazzar or Daniel was very troubled to even tell the king the meaning of this dream because it would be very troubling to the king, as one could imagine. It says he was astonished for one hour and his thoughts troubled him. And the king could see that. And so the king tried to assure him, don't worry, Daniel, just tell me what it means. And Daniel said, The dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. And I take that to mean that the situation that the king would be put in would be seen as a golden opportunity for his enemies or those that hate him to seize the kingdom or take it away from him. But that wasn't God's plan. And God's intent in this, uh, as he says, uh, he says it several times, but in verse 25, Till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of man and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Now consider Nebuchadnezzar's position. And I'll just insert here uh, an observation about these prophetic scriptures and this account here has some examples. The scripture uses at times what we would call hyperbole. What seems to be a bit of an exaggeration to make a point. And it's not to be taken just completely literally in that sense. It is hyperbole. For example, in verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar sent this message out, it says, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom had a great and vast extent throughout all of the Middle East there. 
and he pretty much had a supreme power, uh, such that few men do. However, it doesn't seem quite consistent with this story or even quite reasonable to think that every person on planet Earth at that moment was the recipient of this message. It simply means to say that dwell in all the earth means that it would be sent to the vast extent of his kingdom and not necessarily that every soul on the earth would, would hear this message. Further then, you have the picture of this tree and the tree is described as reaching under heaven and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. Now again, um, if you were standing in one spot and you saw a tree that extended to the end of all the earth, it would probably be as far as the eye could see, but not necessarily encircling the whole globe. So again, there's a bit of hyperbole here in the way it's phrased. And again in verse 22, It is thou, O king, that art grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown, and reacheth unto heaven, and thy dominion to the end of the earth. And again, just another example of of a phrasing there that should simply be understood to mean that his reach, his reign was vast and extensive. And it was, it was very large, exceedingly large, perhaps greater than anyone else in the earth at that time, but again, not necessarily extending to every spot on the globe. It is evident from this passage and, and even the prior one where he was shown that image of gold or that, that large image of metals, gold, silver, iron, brass and iron and so on. The head of gold represented Nebuchadnezzar as, as the chief or pinnacle. So Nebuchadnezzar did whatever he wanted to do. And in fact, as we recall from that account about the fiery furnace, he said, what God can deliver you out of my hand? When Nebuchadnezzar wanted somebody killed, he had them killed. If he wanted them kept alive, they were kept alive. He just did whatever his heart desired. And to give us a little better understanding, let's consider what he actually had there in verse 30. Verse 29, it says, He walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. And that may have been upon his palace. His palace, some think, had up to 250 rooms in it. It was an enormous palace. But that was only the beginning of his mighty kingdom. Babylon 
The king spake and says, Is not this great Babylon that I have built? Now, according to the scriptures, Babylon was established many years prior by Nimrod. In fact, at this point in time, when Nebuchadnezzar lived, the city of Babylon would have been more than a thousand years old. That's pretty ancient. And yet, history uh, would say that under Nebuchadnezzar, it reached its very pinnacle of of splendor and opulence because Nebuchadnezzar built up this city in such a way that it was more formidable than almost any other city that was known to man. Some historians vary a bit on the size, but they believe that this city was approximately anywhere from 10 to 14 miles on each side. And he had built this city with walls around it, walls that were 85 feet thick and 300 feet high. And in this, in this wall they had gates of brass, perhaps eight or ten of these gates of brass. And you can even see to this day they have unearthed some of the splendor there and you can find a picture of what they call the Ishtar Gate which is, and when I say a picture, they have made a replica of what they believe from all their historical excavations. They've been able to recreate something fairly close to what it looked like. And this gate would have been some 20 uh, feet across and it was lined with glazed and colored tiles and had creatures, um, mosaic patterns of creatures and bulls and of lions and, and so on. And it would have been very impressive if you had been walking through those gates. So the wall, being uh, impenetrable by any foreign enemy, not only was it the wall, but he had also built a moat of water completely around this city. And so, as we will see in the next chapter, we have the case of Belshazzar, who is, or Belshazzar, the king, who was after Nebuchadnezzar in the time when he made this great feast to his lords even while the enemy was outside the gate. But Belshazzar had no fear. No fear at all because the city in which Nebuchadnezzar had built was so impressively uh, strong that it was considered impervious to attack. So, Besides this enormous city, Nebuchadnezzar had also built what they called hanging gardens. And we don't know exactly what it was, but there was apparently many terraces, even some of them hanging. And these gardens were so enormous that they were able to hold mature trees in these hanging 
gardens, however that was constructed. And the Greeks considered it one of the seven wonders of the world, these gardens that Nebuchadnezzar had built. So here's Nebuchadnezzar, apparently at the top of his palace. Apparently there was also, they believed there was a large um, shrine to his god, uh, an enormous temple in the city. And he was looking over all of his kingdom there, or his immediate domain of his city there, and the greatness of the city. And here's a man that doesn't have to listen to anybody. He does whatever he wants. And he can look around. Everything is under his dominion. And not only that, he built it. This city was unparalleled, and he built it. And so he's there, and he says, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? And while the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. So, the picture here is a man who has reached the absolute pinnacle of human power and and, uh, position, might, splendor, And he begins to think in himself, I have attained to this height. I have gotten here by myself. And what does God think? God, he's up in heaven. And he sees all. And here is a man who is just inflated in his thinking far beyond what he ought to be. And so God says, no, Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom is departed from thee. And in a moment, Nebuchadnezzar's sanity and reason is gone. They drive him from among men, and he ends up eating grass like the ox. And the splendor and the glory of his kingdom all fades away in as far as his perception is concerned. And all he sees is grass and the dirt like the beasts of the field. His nails grow out like claws. His hair is growing like eagle's feathers. It's so apparently matted and, and it just is anything but a pretty picture. He's just turned into the beast. It says his heart is made like the beast. What I would understand that to mean is he has hardly any more comprehension than the beast of the field. 
you know, the cattle that graze. They just, they think about grazing, they think about laying down, they think about getting a drink, and that's it. They have no illusions of building some grand kingdom. They have no illusions of conquest and, and expansion and, and building a better house for themselves. They just eat, sleep, and lay down. Now, what lessons can we draw from this? Well, I have several to suggest here. First of all, God made it very clear in this story, and understand this, the reason this is recorded in the scriptures is not just for Nebuchadnezzar's benefit, but it's here for our benefit too. And the one thing we clearly draw is that God is sovereign and he rules over the affairs of men and there is nothing that escapes his attention or his knowledge. And in that, we as his people can rest in the, in the uh, transcendent power of the high God. That means that today, any Ruler, no matter where in the earth or what his dominion, if we think of nations today, whether it's Albania or Australia or Zanzibar, any nation, great or small, China, the United States, any ruler, no matter how vast his domain, no matter what his own thoughts are concerning himself, God is still sovereign over all of those rulers. You would be hard-pressed to find anyone more despotic than Nebuchadnezzar in all the annals of history. Oh, there have been men who have been probably just as evil and maybe more so, but with absolute power, And we would tend to shrink and even fear that kind of power over us, you know, or dominion over a nation or whatever. But let's just remember, we can be assured that God knows everything. And that God determines when a man can be set up and when he's put down. And not only Nebuchadnezzar, in the next chapter we have the story of Belshazzar who likewise exalted himself up, and it tells us that Daniel reproved him and told him that he knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And even though he knew all this, he said, Thou hast not humbled thyself, and furthermore, the God in whose hand thy breath is, and in whose are all thy ways hast thou not glorified. So God expects even heathen kings to be accountable to himself for how they conduct themselves. And those who are inflated in pride, God is able to abase. And he even expects them to glorify him. You can go to the New Testament and find a similar example when Herod, who... Hated God, hated Christians, thought he had no 
uh, didn't owe any allegiance to the Almighty. It says that he made a great speech. And the people gave a shout and praised him and said, It is the voice of a God. And then it says that he gave not God the glory and he was smitten uh, by an angel and he was eaten of worms because he gave not God the glory. Does God call to account even the most powerful? Yes, absolutely he does. There is no respect of persons with God. And even from the greatest and highest throne to the nobody in the dungeon, they all will give an account to God. So that can give us a measure of comfort and hope, even in, if we find ourselves under a despotic ruler, that God is still in control. And God will, uh, will see his children and take care of them. What else can we learn from this? The overriding human issue here is that of pride. Nebuchadnezzar was lifted up with pride. Now you may think in your mind as you consider this story, well, that's some far off place and time. That was this king that had everything under his control and of course he would be proud. What does that have to do with me? Well, we all have to deal with this issue of pride. And just as surely as God dealt with Nebuchadnezzar, he can deal with me and you on this matter of pride. And so I'd like to consider this matter of pride and it's found there's admonition against pride throughout all of the scriptures. If we would touch on a few of them we could think of Proverbs where it is said that there are what is it, six things that God hates, and the first one he lists is a proud look. God hates a proud look. Maybe if we back up a little farther even, we find that Satan himself was in Eden, the garden of God, and he was lifted up and exalted in his own mind, and he said, I will be like the Most High. And so in pride he fell and was cast out of heaven. And it is a, a uh, troubling thing that all of us need to reckon with. The scripture tells us to humble ourselves that is the opposite of pride, humbling ourselves. And that tells me that there is action, there is some thought that we need to put into this to bring ourselves lower, 
to not be puffed up. And that it's not just for great kings that lived many centuries ago, but it's for us today. It's for how we live our life, and pride should not be allowed to rule in our life. God said very clearly to the Old Testament uh, peoples that those who walk in pride, he will abase. And those that when he comes in judgment, the proud. Malachi says that the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be as stubble. He reproved the people of Israel. He reproved them for their arrogance against God and having forgotten God. He reproved the daughters of Zion for being haughty in the way they dressed and the way they walked. He reproved the rulers of Israel and called them rulers of Sodom because they had puffed themselves up against God and did not humble themselves before God. But we can go to the New Testament as well, and I'd like for you to turn with me to several passages. Let's start with Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. You know what Nebuchadnezzar's problem was? among other things, but, but the way God dealt with him was he actually removed his sanity from him. Just that simply and that quickly, his sanity left him. And a uh, generation later, when Belshazzar was ruling and, and God wrote on the wall, And Daniel reproved him and said, The God in whose hand thy breath is, hast thou not glorified. And so Nebuchadnezzar did not give credit to the high God, the God of heaven, for his very sanity. Yes, he had done amazing and gloriously magnificent things. He could look at that and say, is not this great Babylon that I have built? And yet forgot that his very sanity or even his very breath was in the hands of this God. 
And so that key should stay firmly in our mind too. As he says here in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. And that word soberly there has to do with right reason, a correct understanding, not uh, not some lofty thoughts, but how we really ought to think. And how we ought to think is that our very breath is in God's hands. Anything we've done is only done by the grace of God. Anything that we might think is to our credit is simply by the mercy and by the grace of God. Paul expressed it very well. He says, Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Can we say that with Paul? Uh, we, and we think of Paul as having accomplished great things for God. Well, he did it no longer glorying in anything that he had in himself, but rather in the grace of God working through him. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Then he goes on to talk about the members in the body. And that's that's us as a church fellowship. We are members one of another. We are part of the body. And we have differing gifts. We have differing ministry. And in verse 9, let love be without dissimulation, without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. And then so on down he goes to verse 16. He says, be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. We should not be puffed up in our mind one against another, but we should condescend to men of low estate. And you know that has many practical ways. I would encourage you that it's profitable for you to think about your life and whether you have a tendency to be too minded of high things and whether you can actually condescend to men of low estate. Just thinking back in our uh, text here, after Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar what the meaning of this dream was, He then gave him this admonition. He said, break off your sins by righteousness. And 
What did he say by having said something about having mercy on the poor? Having mercy on the poor. Apparently that didn't come easily for Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe it doesn't come as easily for us as we think. We have a tendency to be high-minded. But he says, condescend to men of low estate. And it's a deliberately taking a lesser position than we might think we have a right to or, a, or that would um, but condescend and that um, it's an interesting word because as we would commonly use the word today uh, we, we kind of recoil from the idea of condescending and furthermore if we think that someone else is condescending, it has a pretty negative flavor to it. Like, I'm up here, and you're down here. And as long as you recognize that I'm up here, and you're down here, then we're good. That's kind of a condescending attitude. That's not at all what it's meaning here. It simply means that our heart and mind should should be minded to be made like or to to identify with those who are in a lowly place and not to elevate ourselves to some higher plane um, than what others are. Let's look at another passage yet over in Philippians chapter 2. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus." who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of his servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. So we should endeavor to have the same mind that Christ did where he was willing to to lay aside his his, um, his reputation his glory, and was made in the likeness, or he says, the form of his servant. 
That should be the mind that's in us, that we're willing to be a servant and not to, to take authority over others, but to be a servant. And and as I, as I think about this for my own life and, and what my admonition for you is, you know, this is not a once and done thing. This is something that we make a way of life. And when it says that we humble ourselves like Christ did here, he humbled himself. He didn't do that only when he was born in the manger. He didn't do that only at age 12 when he was subject to his parents. He didn't do it only when they wanted to make him a king and he just slipped through the crowd and went elsewhere. It wasn't only in those moments. It was his manner of life. He did it over and over again, all the way to the cross. He humbled himself and humbled himself. And we should seek to do that and seek to be made like Christ in that manner too, that we humble ourselves and humble ourselves day by day. As it says in Peter, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Jesus gave the parable of what it means to humble oneself. If you're called to a feast, don't take the high seat. Take the low place. And if they say, come up higher, then you will have honor. But if you're at a high place and you're asked to give place to a more honorable then you begin with shame to take the lower place. Just start out at the low place. And don't fuss if you don't have the high place. That was the spirit of Christ. He was humbling himself and it became his way of life. Christ... um, clothed himself with humility. That's uh, also the admonition for us is to clothe ourselves with humility. What does that mean? Well, that parallels the thought of it being a way of life, but if we're clothed with humility, that's what people see when they, when they interact with us. They, they see that humility. So let's not look at this story that we looked at there with Nebuchadnezzar and think that it applies only to a faraway time and a faraway place. But humility is the need for us. It is what makes a church work. No humility, no church. I think it's that simple. So let's take that uh, lesson with us uh, for the glory of God.